From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. So, Michael, in your lifetime, have you ever experienced such a combination of worrying elements as we're living through now? Gosh, I don't know. It's pretty hard not to be concerned. We have a war in Europe, a cost of living crisis, a climate emergency, a bunch of things all erupting at the same time, even while we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. Thomas Carlin once described economics as the dismal science, and there are a lot of worrying aspects for economists to get their teeth into right now. But actually, my guest today is far from dismal. He's quite positive. He's come up with what looks like a very workable proposal to tackle soaring energy bills, for instance. I really look forward to hearing the conversation. Jean Pisani Ferry holds the Tommaso Padua Schioppa Chair at the European University Institute. He's a senior fellow at Bruegel, the European think tank, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute in Washington, D.C. He's also a professor of economics with Sciences Po in Paris. And from 2013 to 2016, he served as Commissioner General of France Stratégie, the ideas lab of the French government. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Thanks for having me. I would love to start by asking you about your background. We always like to know where, why people got from A to B. So where did you grow up? Where were you educated? <laughs> and how did you end up doing economics? I was educated as, a, as an engineer in, in, in France, in Paris. I grew up there, got interested in, in politics, got a bit dissatisfied with the, the way engineers interacted with society. Sometimes I regret because sometimes I, I, I thought of think it's simpler. Perhaps you're, you know more about what you actually bring to society. But perhaps not, because I see, you know, many engineers nowadays dissatisfied also, turning to all sorts of different ways of thinking about their, their own contribution to society. So mine was to sort of an early stage to, to change course and, and study briefly economics and then, and then find a job in a, in a think tank. And then I grew up basically moving from research to policy and back different places, different levels. And I never found it uh, boring, especially as, as, as I could start being bored. The, the world start, stopped being boring. Well, the, the world is certainly not boring at the moment and, and in a bad way. No. Um, <laughs> just, just before we go on to what's happening in the world right now, I mean, you say that you never found economics boring, but was it the politics that you found interesting or the economics? Or are they two of the same things? I, I, I never actually contemplated being a politician, really. I mean, I, I thought I would be more useful by being an economist, contributing in my own way, while being conscious of the political dimension of uh, everything you know, I was discussing. But approaching it with an empirical basis, with a theoretical basis, not uh, as a matter for just opinions or, or views that are determined by your sort of political interest. Yes, you do need facts. Yes. I remember, I won't tell you the name, but uh, a dinner with a group of economists and a, and, a, and a very, very senior French politician. And we were asking him questions. And uh, to each question, he was his answer was, you know, this 
group is there, that group, this group is here, that group is there, and I'm here. And so, you know, after some time, first time, second time, we sort of started being angry because we, we believe in facts as economists. I mean, you, you know, we don't believe only in positioning. We, we thought, you know, at some point you have to to get things straight in terms of saying what are the facts and why you believe this is the right policy or the right response. And uh, that tells you something about, you know, what what the way economists see things. And I think many, many people see uh, economists are as too political. Some, the politicians see the economists as not political enough and sort of, you know, perhaps I'm comfortable with this, you know, state of being in between. I think we have to talk about real life and the facts and, and what's going on because we are in a turbulent period. So in a recent paper with Olivier Blanchard, you say that the war in Ukraine is a first order economic shock and you outline three macroeconomic challenges. First, how best to deter Russia while limiting the negative impact on the European economies. Second, how to deal with real cuts in income. And third, how best to deal with inflation. And these are three big things. And you note that these objectives are in conflict with each other and that policy needs to find a way to do that. So my question is, how can you balance those three imperatives? Well, the first thing perhaps is to recognize that there is a tension because people usually, you know, focus on one particular aspect. So you have those who worry about inflation, those who worry about purchasing power, and those who worry about, uh, you know, the, the impact of whatever you do on the uh, Russian uh, export revenue and it's a sort of war uh, capacity. But all three are important. All three have significant consequences. Uh, so you would wish to find a way to balance all three. And there is actually a sort of way out of this, this tension, which we sort of allude to in the, uh, in the paper, but then we wrote another piece in, in French where we go one step further, saying that it's essentially uh, dual pricing. So, so basically... You would say each and every household has the right to purchase a certain quantity of energy for, you know, the the house basically. So for heating, for uh, electricity, you know, what's the sort of the bulk of your energy uh, consumption? Um, car, uh, fuel. I mean, that's that's very different because it depends enormously on the the way of life. I mean, some people spend enormously, some people much less or, or, or zero because they basically take uh, the metro. But the sort of the house that's the core for, for everyone. And so what you can do is to say, okay, why not saying that each household, depending obviously on the, the composition, the size of the household, has a right to buy a certain quantity of energy at administered price. And then the rest should be bought at market price. So there would be, there, there would be first, you know, it would be equitable because the more, obviously, the, the higher your income, the more you consume, the larger your flat, you know. So it would be, in proportion, it would be a much larger support for low-income people. 
or, or working class people. Second, it would keep the price where it is, the market price where it is. So basically people would be facing the signal of the, of the price, of the market price. And third, and this is more subtle, when you talk to statisticians and you ask them, you know, what can you take into account in the price index, the consumer price index, they tell you if it's a general rebate on the price of energy, whatever the form, we take it into account. It's our duty to take it into account. So if it's a transfer to certain categories of households, depending on the, the income of the household, it's a, it's a transfer. It's not part of the pricing. But if it's a general system, then it's part of the pricing. So basically, that would be you know giving people a voucher. The voucher gives you a right to purchase energy at a certain price. Having purchased from your energy supplier, you can pay with the, with the voucher. And if you consume more, you would pay at the market price. If you consume less, you would get a refund. So basically, each household would be facing the incentive. So we think that is sort of a, of a, of a way out of this, uh, of this conundrum. Do you think that it's an idea that will gain any traction with politicians in Europe? I don't know. That we, we, we're back to the first question, you know, economists and politicians. But I think it's our duty to sort of draw the attention of politicians on this particular set of incentives. And I would say also, you know, the more you let inflation increase, the more painful it will be to reduce inflation down the road. We know by experience, I mean, politicians may have forgotten, but to reduce inflation, you have to go through a painful episode of, you know, low pressure economy, to put it this way, higher unemployment, etc. Yes, of course. And it, it is a shocking thing for all of us that we have a first order economic shock, which is the war in Ukraine. But we've just come out of a first order economic shock, which was the COVID pandemic. Now, as you well know, inflation was already rising because consumption, this pent up consumption sort of exploded as people were allowed to go out again, and et cetera, et cetera. So we were already worried about inflation. And then the energy shock came. How worried are you now with the inflation issue? I mean, we have hit a 30-year high in the UK. I don't know what the figures are for Europe. I guess it's it depends on the longevity of this war. It depends on the whole Russia resolution. I don't know. How worried are you? Well, it depends on something else also, which is the state of the energy market. I mean, the more uh, we look into it, the more we realize that the, the energy market is being disturbed deeply by the green transition. And it's not going to go away. And it's probably going to worsen because the EU, I mean, it has drawn the conclusion from this, this war that they, they need to accelerate the transition. So more investment into, into green, less into well, brown. And the International Energy Agency is telling us that if you look at the, the distribution of, of global in investment in, in energy, so in, in the brown, in the traditional uh, energy, we are about where we should be for a transition to net zero by 2050. 
But in terms of the green investment, we're not there at all. We are much below. So basically, and you know, there is massive investment hesitancy. The difficulty that because policy is not clear enough, there is, there is a massive problem of credibility of climate policies. And because of the technology uncertainty, companies are, are not investing what they would normally be investing in fossil fuels, but they're not investing what they should be investing in, in green technology. So, so basically, we are sort of a, in a state of imbalance. And this is creating this paradoxical situation where the price of oil and the price of gas, well, let's say the price of oil because it's a, it's a global price, the price of gas is more regional, but the price of oil, oil is at a level that's very surprising if you, you start from the assumption that, uh, from the observation that the GDP, global GDP, is three percentage points below the level should have reached uh, without COVID. So, so COVID, we, you know, COVID has had and still have a, a huge impact on this uh, global GDP in, in level terms. The recovery from COVID was fast, but the, the, in, in level terms, we're we definitely the, the expected level. So how can it be that the price of oil, which is, you know, it's not the highest price we've, we've seen. I mean, everybody forgot that in, in 2010, 2014, we had extremely elevated prices for, for oil. But here we have a combination of factors leading to this uh, high price of oil. And, and the underlying situation in the energy market is, is a cause for it. Do you think that it is right to respond to the current situation by trying to accelerate investment in green Initially, one might have thought that the response to the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis was to pump oil, to pump gas, to find other sources, and that the energy, the, the climate transition would be put back. But it may well be that the climate transition accelerates, but only if we could get that investment. You're, you're perfectly right. I mean, the... Um the European strategy, uh, the well, the British and the EU strategies were, were basically the same, was to sort of a, have a fast transition to net zero, so minus 55% compared to 1990 for the EU, uh, a bit more actually for the UK, I don't have the exact number in mind. But gas was still expected to serve as a sort of transition technology, because the carbon content of gas is much less than the carbon content of fuel or coal. So there was the idea that you could sort of transition and then after 2030, move towards eliminating gas. Now, what we, we're seeing is that the shock, the geopolitical shock, implied that you have to get rid of gas faster. So basically, you want to accelerate but in the short term, because of the confrontation with, with Russia, you may have to go for technologies that are more carbon intensive. You have to sort of, you know, use more intensively the coal plants. So, so in the short term, you're, you're sort of, you know, doing worse in terms of the, uh, of the climate performance with the goal of accelerating in the, at a sort of two, three, five years horizon. Which, which actually means for companies, you know, very conflicting signals. We're telling them, invest, 
build the terminals for regasification so that we can import uh, LNG. But at the same time, we're telling you that we're going to get rid of gas much faster than before. So, so this is also part of this uh, instability we're seeing. And, and this also contributes to, to sort of fueling uncertainty and, and inflation. Jean, how do you see all of this playing out, the, the, the response to Russia, it, the cost of living, the inflation issue? Obviously, in the short term, there's lots of turbulence. But do you see the parameters of response that will help us to contain all this and, and respond in the right way beginning to emerge? There is a debate going on between people who think that, I mean, the the war will be won or lost on the ground, you know, I mean, in the military uh, confrontation, and people who think that the, uh, the the economic dimension, the sanctions, have a role and have a potentially a strong role. I'm much closer to the second view. Because I consider first that, you know, there's a sort of moral imperative for those of us who are not participating in the, um, in the fighting. And we, you know, I, I don't think we should be. But second, because the, the EU, the, the UK, the West made a choice on the 24th of, of February, which is to use all the the power they, they have with the control of the infrastructure of globalization to put an enormous economic pressure on Russia. And that's a confrontation we should be winning. It would be a disaster if the conclusion of this war were to be, you know, that the, we, we, can, we can inflict it sort of, you know, 10, 20% drop in income to our adversary, but we cannot afford to, to suffer a, a drop by 1% or 2% of our, our own income. And that's a bit what we, we're seeing. I mean, we, we, we're seeing a, a, a sort of very strange debate. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't minimize what this rise in energy prices implies for, for people in, in our countries. But... I wouldn't minimize uh, either what what it implies, what the situation implies for those who are much closer to the front line. I mean, the Poland, the Baltic countries, they're ready to suffer, you know, significant hardship for 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 themselves as a consequence of their commitment to this to supporting Ukraine by welcoming refugees, but also by cutting ties with uh, the Russian energy system. So it's, it's really something we, we should be much more conscious of. You made a, a very pertinent point, which is that, you know, the suffering in other parts of Europe is going to be very high, is already very, very high. And yet there seems to be only an appetite for modest suffering in some of the Western European economies. It, rubles appear to be being used to pay for Russian gas. Are we compromising yeah, yeah. on our response in Western Europe because we don't want to take the discomfort? Well, what was done initially was 
very effective. That was to use the the fact that Russia had accumulated foreign exchange reserves, you know, in the central banks of the uh, G7 countries, essentially, and and in Switzerland, as a way to sort of immediately respond. And that was completely unexpected on the side of, of Russia. The shock effect was absolutely major. The disorganization of the Russian financial system was major. And, and this, this was a sort of demonstration of resolve that was very effective and very supportive for the Ukrainians because it meant to them, we're not alone. And even though, you know, people in, in Western Europe and the U.S. are not participating in the fighting, they're not letting us down. And so I think that was essential. But that was a sort of stock effect, right, with the reserve. The reserve, that's a stock. But there is a flow also dimension. And the flow dimension is how much income is derived from exporting gas and oil to uh, the rest of the world. Now, if we distinguish between oil and gas, oil is a global commodity. So nobody uh, really wants, and Russia represents about 12, 13% of global supply. So it's enormous. And you don't want this sort of chunk to be withdrawn from the market because it would send prices to the to the sky and actually it could actually benefit Russia by uh, if it succeeds in exporting some deriving very high uh, income from it. So what you want to do is to sort of minimize the income for Russia and I think the combination of sanctions, the threat of future sanctions, all that was effective uh, in this regard. So the Russian oil is sold with a 35% discount at present on the, on the global market. On gas, it's different because gas is a sort of bilateral relationship between Russia and, and, and Western Europe. And here you have a monopoly producer, Gazprom, and you have different buyers. And so the question is, what can this monopoly producer do? Uh, how can it exploit its monopoly uh, position? Being known that this is a strength in the short run, but at this sort of two, three years horizon, this is a weakness because at a two, three years horizon, there is much, or even shorter, there is a much higher uh, capacity for Western Europe to diversify its sources of supply, that there is a possibility for Russia to sort of diversify its markets. So we're in a sort of very strange game with two sides playing. And again, that's a question of not uh, going to the extreme, not sort of getting rid of Russian gas immediately. But what we are advocating with uh, Olivier Blanchard in the, in the paper we, we uh, published is, is, a, is a tariff, because a tariff, that's a way to signal that, you know... Uh, there is something called Russian gas and that you don't want to sort of continue depending on Russian gas. So you can put the tariff at a certain level now and then you can increase the tariff over time. I think in my lifetime, I have never known such a concatenation of worrying events. <laughs> we were worried about climate change. We had the pandemic. We've now got war in Europe. 
We have other geopolitical strategic issues, no doubt, on the horizon. In that circumstance, how can we globally cooperate to nurture the global public goods like climate, like food, like health? How can we do that in a fractured world? That's the most difficult question, I think. So perhaps to start in a sort of a optimistic basis, because, you know, adding to the, the gloom would be too easy. The, the Cold War, we had this high level, high degree of confrontation, especially at the start, and then the ability to preserve peace. And we went through, you know, the US and the, uh, and the Soviet Union went through a very difficult moment with the crisis in Cuba, with the, uh, the crisis in Czechoslovakia, in, in Poland, and they were always able to sort of keep the confrontation to manage at a managed scale, at a, at a scale that we could be managed. So, which indicates that you can have, you know, this combination of confrontation and, in a way, cooperation. Now, I, I completely agree with you that the, the characteristic of the, the, the world we, we're in is that we have interdependence at a level to a degree that was never, never experienced. Climate, I mean, it, it, is, it is extreme because whatever, wherever you are, the consequences of your uh, emissions are exactly the same globally. So it's extremely uh, difficult to, to uh, sort of to address. It's a, it's a collective action problem of, of absolutely unprecedented magnitude. Also because there are all possible incentives to, to cheat, to free ride, to pretend, and we're seeing that. So we have that, and we have a fragmented world. We have a world that's increasingly, you know, fragmented with different preferences, with different views of what the priorities are. So it's not, it's true that it's not a bipolar world anymore. I mean, it's a multipolar world. So, so the really, the, the question is, what sort of system should we be having to respond to this type of situation? And in my view, there's sort of three levels. There is one level, which is the level of those global public goods that you mentioned. So climate, biodiversity, health, you name them. These, and, and, and this is, the, you know, there is an imperative to cooperate. We know all the difficulties. The equity dimension is, is daunting, but there is an, an imperative to cooperate. Then you have the, the sort of the rules of the road for international trade, uh, international finance, etc. And here we have to sort of scale down with respect to the ambition there was, say, 20 or, or 30 years ago, when there was a view that the world could converge on a level of ambition for those uh, rules that essentially meant everybody would converge on the same system. We have to accept that it's not the case. I mean, perhaps eventually it will happen, but it's not going to be the case for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. So the, the rules of the road have to be simple enough for everybody to sort of find interest in, in abiding by those rules without, uh, you know, 
considering that on issues like competition, issues like property rights, uh, issues like labor rights, uh, I mean, there will be a convergence. And the third is a sort of, you know, deep integration system, which was built, which was assumed to sort of be eventually the system on which everybody, in which everybody would, would participate. And we have to accept that not everybody will participate in it. So it has to be viable geometry. There needs to be, you know, conditions for participating in it. It's what specialists call behind the border integration. So in some respect, we see, you know, things also moving in this this field. For example, on taxation, on taxing uh, multinational corporations, the, the draft agreement, it's still a draft at the, uh, at the OECD after the move by the Biden administration is, is, is a very positive development. But, but we have to accept that, you know, it's not going necessarily to be universal. There's just one other question I want to ask, which is slightly seems seems off beam given the huge issues that we're discussing. But MGI has just put out a report about Europe's standing on technology and warning that even with these very, very large issues, it's something that needs to be addressed. We looked at t- 10 transversal technologies that spread across sectors and Europe is leading or just about matching on two of them. And the argument is that unless this is addressed and the EU and others are doing a lot to address it, then there is a competitiveness worry uh, concern and a growth concern down the road. Is that something that you believe is, is true and is an issue and an urgent issue for Europe to look at? It's been an urgent issue for a while. Things are being done, you know, in terms of the capital markets, in terms of uh, innovation policies, in terms of competition, because Europe plays at values competition perhaps much more than uh, the US currently does. But the observation is that it's not enough. I mean, that we're seeing limited results. The reason why we're seeing limited results has in part to do with something we can't really, you know, do much about, which is um, the the fragmentation of the European market. We won't have a, a unified market for services because it has to do with taxation, it has to do with consumer protection, it has to do with sort of various dimensions on which we haven't reached a level of, 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 of unification that is the level of, of a single state. But... We all know that Israel is a very, very innovative, small country, basically doesn't benefit from a single market, and but benefits from the sort of very strong connection between the, the, the tech uh, sector, university, and in this case, the military, and that they have been extremely successful in developing innovation. So, you know, there is no reason why Europe couldn't do, do better. Sort of a... What makes me relatively optimistic is that we're seeing, you know, more and more happening, but but at the same time, obviously, the scale of the of the issue is growing because you know the whole of the economy is getting digital, and and therefore what looked initially like a sort of sectoral disadvantage is becoming a, a global disadvantage. 
Well, on, on, on a very final note, we've covered a lot of ground and thank you so much. Just leave us with one thought. What is your one piece of advice for listeners to this podcast? <laughs> There's a sentence I, I, I love, which is what uh, Pope John Paul II told the Pauls, don't be afraid. I love that. Don't be afraid, meaning, you know, or yes, we can if you prefer, but that's basically the same. Don't, don't assume that things are impossible. On that happy note, thank you very much. Thank you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.